Thanks, John. Good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church. Don't let the, the cardigan and vans mislead you. I'm not Mr. Rogers. This is not my neighborhood. I guess it's worked so deeply into my subconscious that apparently I just accidentally dress up like him from time to time. Um, the shoes are going to stay on, um, and so will the cardigan. Um, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, we're continuing in the series that we've been in for the past few weeks. We're calling ReChurch, reminding ourselves what the church is and what the church does. And this morning, we're going to be looking at what it means to be a sanctifying church. Sound good? I grew up playing football. I played football in high school. And at the end of my freshman year, um, I was brought onto the varsity team. And I was basically just a tackling dummy for a few weeks, and I held up the whiteboard during the games. And at the end of one of the first practices, it was time for conditioning. And so they would line the entire team up, and we'd run 40-yard sprints to make sure that we're staying in shape. And, and this was my time to show out, right? In my 14-year-old mind, this is my time to, to blow everyone's mind with this, the gift of speed that God has given me, right? So we lined up, the coach blew the whistle, and I took off. And I just ran as fast as I could. And I, and I beat the entire team. We lined up again, and, and I beat everyone again. So now I'm feeling pretty good, right? It's very chariots of fire. Like I could feel God's pleasure on me as I'm running saying, go, son, go, right? And then so I lined up and ran again, and I was in front again. And at this point, I'm just like smiling, right? Because I don't even think my feet are touching the ground. The Spirit of God is just carrying me across the field. And it was after the fourth one that one of the seniors walked up to me, visibly angry, and said, hey, freshman, stop running. And then it clicked, right? Because it wasn't that I was running fast. It's just that everyone else was jogging. They had this mutual understanding that if they all just ran the same pace, none of them would have to run very hard. And it didn't look like any of them were slacking. And the reason this this came to my mind while I was thinking about how we pursue holiness together is because sometimes I wonder if at some point we've just gotten comfortable. If we just gotten comfortable with our certain level of holiness or a certain level of sanctification, and we're all just looking to the right and we're looking to the right, left, and we're just trying to keep pace with everyone else around us, not trying to fall too far behind so that we look bad, but also not pressing hard enough into our sanctification that things actually start to become difficult. I guess the question that comes to my mind as we talk about growing in holiness is whether we've all just started to jog. I think God calls us to more. We are a people that should be growing in our holiness and not complacent or content with where we are today. And my prayer for this morning is that God will start to shake us out of some of that complacency that we might have settled into. And to do this, we're returning to the prayer that we have from Jesus in John 17. We call this the high priestly prayer. And in verse 6, Jesus begins to, uh, to pray for his disciples. And he, as he prays for them, he, he describes about how they became his disciples. We have it in verses 6 through 10. Let's read them. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them, 
not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Right from the start, Jesus is alluding to this distinction between the disciples and the world that they're in. In verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. In verse 9, he says, I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those that you've given me. Jesus is making it clear that the disciples are separate from the world, and this separation creates conflict. And this frames the central concern for Jesus' prayer. And that's the beginning at verse 11. Let's read it. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is saying this right before he's killed. Soon the disciples wouldn't have the benefit of his his immediate bodily presence. He wouldn't be there to teach them and to correct them and to guide them and to lead them. And so Jesus is praying to transfer their guardianship back to the Father for safekeeping. But notice how he addresses the Father. Here in verse 11, he calls him Holy Father. Holiness is is, is something that can be often misunderstood. And the reason this matters specifically for this morning is because holiness and sanctification are intimately related. We see this clearly in the Greek words used for both of these words. The Greek word for holy here in verse 11 is hagias. The Greek word for sanctify in verse 17 is hagiatso. Pushing the interconnectedness of this entire passage even further, the Greek word for consecrate in verse 19 is the same word. These words holy, sanctify, and consecrate are all related. And fundamentally, they're all referring to different aspects of the same thing. Separateness. Holiness is being separate. Sanctify and consecrate refers to people or things that are set apart or separated for God. So to call God Holy Father is to say God is separate. So separate that he's perfectly morally pure, unstained or unspotted by the world and the sin around him. The way I describe this to the kids is God is perfectly perfect. There's a qualitative difference between God and all of the rest of creation. He's not even in the same category. God is above and transcendent. He is distinct and different. He is unique and distinctive. He's not classified in our box of creation. He is outside of it. This is central for what it means for God to be God. Because if God isn't holy, then God is not God. And I want you to feel the weight of this because it's the foundation of our sanctification. Because at its most basic level, sanctification is being set apart and separated unto God. In other words, it's being made to look more and more like Jesus, who's perfectly set apart and devoted to the Father. Now, personal holiness is something I think can, can can be misunderstood. I think a lot of times when we talk about holiness, it's reduced to to good behavior or morals or ethics. It's the thought of just self-denial of the things that we think are bad, right? No dancing, no gambling, no Netflix, no McDonald's. (laughs) There have been times where I've been sitting in the drive-thru in McDonald's and thinking to myself, there has to be some sin in here somewhere. Holiness is often seen as abstaining or withdrawing from some things that we see as bad. Now, don't get me wrong. 
That could be part of what it means to be holy, but that's definitely not the whole of it. And this is where the rubber starts to meet the road for us in this passage this morning. The title used here of Holy Father is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And so far in the prayer Jesus has simply referred to the Father as Father in verses 1 and 5 and then again in verses 21 and 24. This tells us that the name used here is not just filler, it's intentional. Jesus is introducing us to a theme that will take us through the rest of this entire passage. He's bringing the holiness of God to bear its weight on the life of the disciples. With that, let's reread the second part of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus draws our attention specifically to the fact that God is holy because it's the holiness of God that would lead him to passionately protect his people from the corruption that they're in. He's asking the Holy Father to, out of the outflow of his holy character, guard the disciples, make them pure, and keep them separate unto himself. This request from Jesus is similar to us calling God provider and then asking for provision. Or calling God healer and asking him for healing. Or calling God merciful and asking for forgiveness. And this shows a relationship that I don't think we pay close enough attention to. Our sanctification, our holiness is derived from the holiness of God. Holiness starts with God. Everything else is holy as it relates to him. We saw an example of this idea in the reading plan a couple weeks ago. God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And as Moses approached the bush, God told him to take off his sandals because the ground he's standing on is holy. God didn't search the desert looking for dirt that was good enough. The dirt wasn't holy in itself. The dirt was holy because God was there. The holiness of the ground was derived from the holiness of the presence of the God that rested upon it. Holiness starts with God. And this is the same idea picked up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's God's holiness that makes our holiness matter. Look at what it says. You shall be holy for I am holy. The command for holiness and sanctification is founded upon our relationship to a holy God. That's why it's a mark of the church. We are a sanctified people set apart to be holy because our Father in heaven is holy. That's why our pursuit of holiness can't be compromised and can't be lost. It's, nece it's necessary because it's based in the very nature of God. That's the basis for the command. Hebrews 14, 12, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The Bible commands us to strive for holiness. That's what we mean when we say we are a sanctifying church. There's a quality of holiness that will characterize God's people. Now, the question posed in the Bible is not whether or not God's church will be holy. Because God's church will be holy. 
The question posed in the Bible is whether or not you're actually part of God's church. Now, this is a sobering thing. Because I think if we're all honest, we would say that we're falling short in one regard or another. But there's a, there's a sweetness in this. Remember that this is framed in a prayer to the Father. Jesus is asking the Father to act in accordance with his character and protect the disciples from the corruption and the pollution that they're surrounded by. And it shows us that God is not just a judgmental spectator on the sidelines as we struggle for sanctification. The zeal that the Lord has to demand the holiness of his people is the same zeal that he has to work for it on their behalf. My son, my son started t-ball a couple weeks ago. And as he ran out onto the field, it became immediately clear to me that he had no clue what he was doing. So I went out onto the field with him and I helped guide him through everything. It was his turn to bat and the coach was giving all the kids nicknames. And so he asked Noah what he wanted his nickname to be. And Noah looked at him and said, I'm Batman. <laughs> and then he struck out, stood there for a couple seconds and ran to second base. <laughs> Wrong on so many levels all at once. He was playing in the dirt. He was, he was pulling up grass. He was doing cartwheels in the outfield. At one point, he decided that it'd be fun to play chase, so he just takes off running to the other, other end of the park. And I, I wanted him to pay attention. I wanted him to have fun. I wanted him to be respectful and learn the game, but I knew he needed help. So I wasn't in the stands shaking my head in disappointment. I was on the field with him. So when he sat down to pick up grass, I told him, no, son, stand up, pay attention. When he wanted to play chase and ran away, I went and got him and brought him back. When, it's, when it was his turn to run and he couldn't find first base, I ran with him. See, God doesn't just require holiness and sanctification as the mark of his church. He works in us and with us to produce what he requires. He corrects us when we're wrong. He picks us up when we fall. And he brings us back when we wander off. And with his Holy Spirit, he runs the bases with us to show us how it's done. God cares about our holiness and he works in us to produce and protect it. And Jesus asks for this so that his disciples will be one as he and the Father are one. To the degree the church is influenced and polluted by the world around it, its unity will be broken. Now, as we move forward through the prayer that Jesus says, he says plainly what he implied earlier. Let's read it in verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is a brief retrospect of the past three years Jesus spent with the disciples. While he was with them, he guarded them, he taught them, he shepherded them, and not one of them was lost. And here Jesus pauses to respond to the obvious question. What about Judas? Who at this point has already left and is literally on his way to meet with a band of soldiers and the Jewish leaders that bribed him to betray Jesus. That sounds like he lost him. First, you have to pay attention to what Jesus calls Judas. In the original text, this would have been a bit of a play on words. 
It would have read, not one of them has been lost, but the son of lostness. Lostness characterizes Judas. He was lost and was always lost. He was never truly one of Jesus' disciples to begin with. Jesus knew this, and that's why in John 6, 70, he calls him a devil because Judas was going to betray him. Further, Jesus says that Judas' lostness occurred just as the scriptures predicted it would, showing that what happened to Judas was neither a failure on the part of Jesus, nor did it catch him off guard. Let's go back to the text in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here, Jesus reiterates that he's going to be leaving the disciples, and this ordinarily would have been a time for sorrow, but it's not. Here, everything Jesus has said and will say is with the goal of bringing the disciples into his own joy. Now, keep in mind that in John chapters 13 through 18, they're all part of the upper room discourse. Everything that Jesus is saying in this, in this time and across these chapters is happening in one sitting. And earlier in this time with the disciples, Jesus has already told them that the world will hate them and persecute them and kill them that in the world they will have trouble. And having just acknowledged the brutality that these men were going to face, Jesus says something that just catches us off guard. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I ask you to keep them from the evil one. Jesus could have solved all of the problems that they were going to face by just taking them out of the world. He could have saved them from all the persecution and suffering he could ask for, for safety and ease and comfort and leisure, but he didn't. And in fact, he specifically rejected the idea. Their lives were to be difficult because their Savior intended it to be so. He didn't ask the Father to remove them. Instead, he asked the Father to protect them. We all know this past year has been, has been less than ideal. It's been one thing after the next, and if I'm honest, there's an impulse in me that, that just wants to get away, to just take the money that I'm using to rent my three-bedroom home and buy an entire city in Kansas and a ranch and some horses for my girls, right? And just go full-on little house on the prairie, and my kids will call me Pa, and we'd hop in the buggy and go to the market. A simple life, unplugged and disconnected from all of the madness that feels like we can't get away from. Maybe you know what I'm feeling. The temptation amidst the chaos is to disengage in one sense or another when things get hard, to try and find safety and peace and comfort and withdrawal and escape. If you feel that, then what Jesus says here is particularly important. Jesus knew the trouble that the disciples were going to face. But he didn't want their safety to come from the absence of struggle. And the same goes for us. When things get hard, he doesn't want our refuge to be in our isolation. He wants our refuge to be in him. 
We can't orient our lives around the path of least resistance. He wants us to stay in the tension of being in a place where we don't belong. He wants us to deal with the hostility and chaos by being salt and light. Not to hide from the storms, but to find our shelter in him and endure them. He doesn't want us to resort to self-preservation because he's praying to the Father for our preservation. And one of the ways this preservation is provided is in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Here we have the means by which God sanctifies us. We've already seen that in a sense, the disciples are already set apart from the world. They are already not of the world. But practically speaking, they still needed to progress into the holiness that God has already set them apart for. This is what's known as progressive sanctification. This is the journey that every Christian makes as they move more and more to being like Jesus and less and less to being like the world that they're around. More and more holiness, less and less sin. And Jesus says that the means for this is truth, and God's word is truth. And I think we can link some things together here because a scripture-keeping church will be a sanctifying church. Because it's by the scriptures that we are sanctified. And what this means is that God's people are changed to the degree that they see the things around them as they truly are. That's why God said he would send his Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And conversely, this means that what characterizes the world around us is deception. In Romans 1, Paul goes as far as to say that, that what characterizes all of fallen humanity is a suppression of the truth. This unavoidably leads to sin. It's been played out from the very beginning. Adam and Eve dropped in a garden being given everything they could want or need, tempted by, by Satan through the presentation of a lie, a lie that said, God is holding something back from you. Eat this fruit and you can have all the good that God is keeping from you. And that lie captured both Adam and Eve, and they disobeyed God. Now, this little scene plays, us, plays out in us over and over and over again. We're presented a lie, and we're offered an illusion, and we have to decide what's true and what's not. We behave in alignment with the things that we believe to be true. There are lies about who we are or where we find our worth or what will bring us joy. Lies about what's good and what's bad. Lies about who God is and what will solve our problem. Think about it. Covetousness doesn't happen unless you believe the lie that stuff is going to bring you joy and significance. Dishonesty and deceitfulness happen when we believe the lie that the best way to deal with our problems is just to hide them. Hypocrisy happens when we find our worth and value derived from what people think about us rather than what it really is. And these are just a few of the lies that we can buy into every single day. And it's the truth that keeps us from being swept away by the waves of lies and deceptions that we're being bombarded with. Let's take covetousness for an example. It's the Bible that tells us that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That means that I don't need to obsess about the things that I don't have because I know I have a father and a shepherd in heaven that's giving me everything that I need. So I don't need to covet because I have, I have everything I need in Christ. 
And we can do the same exercise with lust or anger or bitterness or worry. So when you're at a crossroad and you feel that urge welling up in you to to go somewhere that you shouldn't or do something that you shouldn't or say something that you shouldn't, it's the truth of the Bible that the Holy Spirit uses to reorient our thoughts and keep us from sin. This is what Paul meant when he wrote in Romans 12, 2, that we should be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Our practical transformation happens as we are consistently renewing our minds with the truth of God's word. The Bible is a necessary ingredient in our sanctification because it's the only way we can know truth. A few years ago, one of my, one of my kids tried to convince me that having cold breakfast foods was sin. Good thing I know my Bible because I can shut down that weak theology, right? And it's, it's silly because it comes from a child, but we're led to believe crazy things all day long. And if you don't know the truth, you cannot spot the lie. Any strategy for change that isn't based in the truth of Scripture is a dead end. I just want to pause here and offer some help for people that might be discouraged in the slowness of their sanctification. Because we don't, we don't do this perfectly. If we were to to plot our lives on a sanctification chart, most of us would not be the straight line ever increasing into glory. There are dips and there are missteps and seasons where, where, where growth seems to so, come so slowly that it feels like it's at a standstill. A couple months ago, I took my daughter to Home Depot to buy seeds. She bought a kit and planted the seeds, watered them and set them by the window. And you know what she didn't do the next day? She wasn't disappointed when nothing grew. She understands that that these things don't happen overnight. Plants take time to grow. But if she gives them the right thing, day after day, over a long period of time, something will start to happen. There's this little phrase at the end of the parable of the sower. After Jesus tells the parable about how the, the sower threw seeds and some were picked off by the road, Some were were choked out by thorns and some had no root. But he says some fell in good soil. And in Luke 8, 15, he says, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. I think one of the reasons Bible compa- the Bible compares us to plants is because our growth can be so slow that sometimes it doesn't look like growth at all. And it's going to take us some holding fast to the word and some patience before we start to see fruit. It may not be fast, but we are a people marked by progress. But notice, though, the sanctification is with purpose. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This frames in so much of what Jesus prayed for. This is why he asked the Father to leave them in the world and to guard them and sanctify them. It's so that they can be sent. They needed to be set apart from the world so that they can affect the world. We talked about how the scripture-keeping church will be the sanctifying church. In a couple weeks, we'll see how the sanctifying church is a church that is sent and scattered. But for now, let's finish up in verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
Here, Jesus consecrating himself is Jesus separating and devoting himself to service to God. Keeping in view of what's about to happen to Jesus. Consecration here refers to Jesus setting himself apart to do the Father's will and offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sin. The reason he does this, he says, so that we also may be sanctified in truth. He died so that we can be sanctified. This is the glue that holds everything together. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. Husband, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. When you believed the gospel and were saved, there was a break in your relationship to the world around you and the sin that's within you. God removed you from the world and made you his own. That's why the Bible calls Christians saints, even though we're all so, still so messed up. In Village Kids, we're on, we're on year two of the New City Catechism. So if you, this morning, and you can test me on this, if you, this morning, found one of the kids in the back and asked them, what's your only hope in life and death? They will tell you that we are not our own, but belong to God. In Christ, we have been set apart and now belong to God. So every call to holiness, every exhortation to sanctification is simply God calling you to be what you already are. Jesus' sacrifice in the gospel is the fountain from which all of our holiness flows. We grow in holiness from a place of already being made holy. This is brought out by one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Okay, close attention to the verb tenses because they're incredibly important. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By Jesus' offering of himself, he has perfected us. This is past tense. It's already been done. He's perfected all those who are being sanctified. That's present tense. That's something happening right now. So right now, you are, are both perfected and in the process of being made holy. God sees us as totally complete in Christ because of his sacrifice. Everything that we need in him is in him. And now he's working out what he already put in. God sees us as already been made perfect. And it's from that status that we have before God that we strive and work and press to become holy in practice. Dear saints, your growth in holiness starts with the work that Jesus has already done. And if you haven't accepted that work, you are wasting your time. And it's Jesus' work that makes the full realization of your holiness guaranteed. This keeps the gospel central because we're pressing to grow into something that God has already made us to be. And this brings us to the good news for this morning. We are a sanctifying people because through Jesus' death, we've already been sanctified. This is what drives us forward because God will always finish those things that he started. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And just thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for being able to, to gather here. Father, I pray um, 
I pray that we would feel the weight of the, of the call, the command to holiness. I pray that we would feel that, 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 that urge to become holy because we serve you and you're holy. I pray that, that we wouldn't be discouraged, Father, but that we would trust in you, that we would trust in your word, that we would trust in your spirit to produce these things. I pray that you'd give us the perseverance and endurance that we're going to need to continue to press on into sanctification. Father, I pray that that we keep the goal in mind, Father, that, that as we pursue holiness and we pursue righteousness and pursue the set-apartness, Father, that we would know that, that the end state of this is so that we can affect the world for you, that we would be salt and light, and that we draw more and more souls to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.